0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, permanent Staples Center resident,
1: Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. All is right in the world. The sun is shining in Los Angeles. LeBron James is euphoric after their first quality win of the season. He is toting his new community service award around the locker room he's trying to decide which ice cube album he's going to listen to on the (laughs) ride home lonzo coming through in the clutch for the lakers looking like a future uh, all defensive team selection and no one's missing rajon rondo whatsoever during his three game suspension very interesting and on top of that I'm sure Bucket Getter fans like yourself are gonna wanna get really head over heels over the Lance Stevenson performance in the fourth quarter. But it's all coming together. We tried to bury the Lakers on the last episode, Andrew. They're back, they're resurrected. Uh, it's now Lake Show for Life, and the most important part: Kobe Bryant is selling a book called "Mamba Mentality" during an in-game commercial at the Staples Center and getting standing ovations from the Lakers crowd. Look, it's all coming up purple and gold, Andrew.
0: Yeah, can we confirm? Were there actually Kobe chants during the fourth quarter last night?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. There was <laughs> there was Kobe chants regularly. There was I think it was the 300 section was really trying to make it a thing during the second half, and they were kind of slow to to get on look it's a it's a difficult place to be if you're a Lakers fan. do you stay stuck in the past? do you appreciate your legend do you uh you know try to <laughs> embrace the the present and the future It's tricky, man
0: yeah, I hear you man lake show for life uh yeah, I mean look. I don't want to start the show with more Lakers, but we almost can't help it because they're just incredible right now. Every game is like a fever dream. I have no idea how it's actually happening this way, but they are living up to every bit of crazy-ass hype that people were talking about back in August. I mean, it's just... It's crazy, and you're there for every game, which has thrown off our podcast schedule a little bit, but I'm not even mad about that because this is a higher calling for you. I I need you there to document every step of this journey for the Lakers. So I'll start with one question we got from Aaron, who said this. He said, look, I know the Laker talk is excessive, but this team is just so damn compelling, can we please talk about Lance Stevenson? He looks as goofy and weird as ever. And I understand that it's only a matter of time till his ball-palming ways come back to bite him. But the dude is just bawling right now. So, Ben, here's the deal. We're, I'm going to let you do like five minutes of Lakers discussion here and then we can move on to the rest of the league. But what, what was that fourth quarter like last night in person?
1: It was interesting. Both teams were scoring tons of points in that game, but they were also just missing lots of shots, especially Denver. I felt like Denver should have had about 150 in that game if they had played like they normally do and they just were off for some reason. And so the game was going up and down, but it was like a flat track meet if that makes sense you know it's like all right like we're all here in like a training camp flow like everyone's gonna get points then all of a sudden Lance Stevenson just detonates in the middle of it and he had had a nice game against the Suns the previous night and that's one of the classic situations. it's like oh uh, of course that's why you sign Lance Stevenson to like go nuts against the Suns in games that don't really matter who cares right right I mean he had a stretch there of like eight points and something like you know a little bit more than a minute where the crowd was going crazy, but my instant reaction, as soon as he made that first three, and I I told the guy sitting next to me, I said, there's going to be over under 3.5 heat checks. Okay. Just get prepared. (laughs) And sure enough, next time down, he puts up another three hits it. Sure enough, next time down, he he drives and misses. And then next time down, he drives and makes a layup. Uh, It was, it was just, you know, you could see it. Unfolding before it actually happened, yeah, and you know if he can inject things here and there, you know earlier this week, I was actually thinking like, huh, what kind of trade scenarios can we envision to maybe replace him in the rotation totally but here he here he comes, you know back in business, ready to let everyone know that he could be a second unit fours
0: well, you know you you left out my favorite part of the whole. Fourth quarter for him, which was the Lance and JaVale two-man game that came out of nowhere with about like seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, where Lance drove the lane and kind of pitched it to JaVale five feet from the hoop. JaVale put up one of the worst sky hooks in NBA history, and then a loose ball ensued where Lance somehow grabbed the rebound and then took it out to the three-point line, and he did, like, the Jordan palming thing, which is now, I guess, a Lance Stevenson signature, but where he, he palmed the ball and then started backing down his guy. I forget who was guarding him, but he just tripped over his own feet trying to post up, and the combination of Lance iso and JaVale skyhook, like... It honestly, I was so disgusted that those guys were playing crunch time minutes that I wanted to just turn off the game right then. And then sure enough, Lance fucking changes the entire game from there and was actually great down the stretch. So I just have no idea what to think with any of this.
1: I don't know if you've seen those little toy BB eights that the star Wars people came out with a couple years ago where you can like control it with your phone and this little ball will like roll all over your living room. Those were
0: like a sharper image specialty for a couple years there.
1: Absolutely. So of course those you know, lots of people use those to like mess with their cats or mess with their dogs. Mm -hmm. Lance and JaVale looked like animals chasing a BB eight on that play. Like the (laughs) the ball was the BB eight and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like trying to figure out where it's going. Yeah. But I actually think, in all seriousness, Lance's best play of the fourth quarter wasn't any of the baskets. Obviously, it wasn't that goofy sequence. It was the pass that he hit LeBron perfectly in stride for that breakaway dunk, and it was just such a crucial, smart decision from Lance. And I loved LeBron with the over-the-top positive reinforcement. Like LeBron has not really acknowledged Lance's existence very much. Like even after he hit those two threes, it was like Lance came back to the bench and LeBron's like, okay, here's like, you know, a token high five. After Lance made that pass, LeBron like sought him out, gave him the chest bump, like pointed in, you know, pointed in his face. that Basically, that's what we need from you. Um that to me was kind of telling, right? Because mm-hmm. he's trying to coax these guys into playing a certain way with him. And I think that's what he wants from Lance is is better decisions because there's been some just atrocious turnovers already this season. But that type of pass, Lance has that somewhere in his scrambled basketball IQ and every once in a while it comes out and, and we'll see if it can be more consistent.
0: Yeah. And I would add that Lance has, there's a similar dynamic with Lance as there was with Jr. Smith in Cleveland, um, and I don't think that Lance can ever start on a Finals team. But if LeBron is able to coax out the best version of him, he absolutely has the talent to help them as a as a guy who plays twenty minutes a game and can sometimes just be a spark down down the stretch, who can help change games like that. He could be that guy if you're able to cut down on the like ridiculous, freewheeling uh, kind of like the style that has come to define him over the last five or six years.
1: Just tone the circus down from like three rings to one ring is basically what you're saying. Hey, I I also think that Lakers fourth quarter was like – an ultimate case of well, actually, because of course, everyone's losing their mind over Lance. But if you want to be the well, actually guy, and actually, I do want to be that guy right now. Well, actually, we should give Lonzo Ball major credit for that Lakers closing push because he made an incredible steal on an instinctive play to force a turnover, get out in transition He had a a stop on Nikola Jokic when they go small late in the game and he winds up, you know, missing a a shot in the paint with Lonzo kind of holding his ground and not fouling. And then he draws the charge on Jokic out, uh, you know, on the perimeter, basically fighting over his screen as he's playing defense. I think Lonzo had something like five steals, eight assists. Uh, You know, in that starting role and, you know, Murray really got off. I mean, he had a nice night for Denver and Murray is really, really good. And man, this Denver team is pretty cocky and confident. They've got a bunch of guys who are really feeling themselves right now. Yeah, but I thought Lonzo played really well in that starting role. And personally, he didn't get enough. I thought he didn't get enough credit down the stretch for his impact on that game. And I also think going forward, I'm ready to call it, Andrew. I think it's time Lonzo starts Rondo or no Rondo. I think it's time to move Lonzo into that starting lineup and see what he can do.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Lonzo because that was the last point I wanted to hit before we moved on. I mean... Ooh,
1: you're well-actually too, okay? No, no. We're both
0: on it. I love it. (laughs) I think he deserves a lot of credit, you know, when his jumpers are falling and look... Lonzo in the first quarter and really the first half was not playing very well but down the stretch we got to see good Lonzo and um you know the three he hit was basically the backbreaker in the fourth quarter and his ability to hang on defense against the Nuggets where again like the Lakers just need three or four guys who are going to be solid I mean Lakers fans if you talk to them this offseason, they talked about Lonzo like he was Gary Payton on defense. And to me, he's not that level of a defender, but he is going to be solid and be able to hang in there with guys. And he was able to do that with Jokic. So, like, he's he's a good piece for them. And, uh, and particularly yeah, when his jumper's falling, he makes them a, a much more stable, kind of sensible team.
1: Yeah, he's just bigger, longer little bit stronger, and then much more higher energy uh, than a guy like Rondo on the defensive end. And he's more disruptive. And with him and Hart together, I like that pairing because Hart's a pretty reliable shooter. Lonzo, the shot's there when he trusts it, and it's way off when he doesn't trust it, right? So that kind of complements each other uh Lonzo he doesn't need to have the ball to pound it pound it pound it but Hart you know is capable of kind of creating off the dribble when you need I just think that they complement each other pretty well and I just like Rondo I think better with some of those second unit guys where maybe he can uh, actually orchestrate a little bit more because I think you lose some of what Rondo does when you play him on the court with LeBron yeah because LeBron's always going to have the ball right so to me it's kind of a natural move on basically every level but you know the one hang up, of course, is Rondo's personality, and we'll see how uh, you know Luke Walton manages that decision. I think uh, going forward.
0: Yeah, I'm also not sure I even love Rondo with the second unit. I might want um, Brandon Ingram spending more time with the second unit as the, as kind of the lead ball handler because he's great on the ball, and the jury is still out on how Ingram is going to play off the ball next to LeBron. But I think if you give him. More opportunities on ball. He should be pretty solid there. I still have zero confidence in this Lakers team, to be clear. But the win over the Nuggets was a good step for them. And uh, we'll see we'll see where it goes from here. But Ben, now, since we've gone over our Lakers limit by eight minutes here, but um, let's turn to a team that is completely hopeless right now and a complete mess Ooh. that has not Ooh. righted the ship. what's a realistic prediction for the OKC Thunder coming out of these first four games? Granted, it's only been four games, so it's not a total disaster. But, I mean, things do not look great.
1: No, things do not look great at all. And, you know, it's funny. Everything that I was, you know, kind of screaming at you about the Thunder last year in terms of, like, they don't have enough shooting. They're too reliant on Westbrook. Westbrook plays with purpose but not a purpose. They're never going to be able to elevate as an elite offense. Um, you know, they don't really have a good answer at the four spot. Uh, their defense shows signs of being elite, but it can't be there consistently. Like those were a lot of the knocks that I was bringing out last season. Yeah. And you did a pretty good job of like, you know, parrying them away and and trying to keep, you know, keep the faith in Westbrook as this MVP guy who you love to view as an <laughs> MVP candidate. Uh, I think that a lot of those flaws are just even more obvious this season. Um, we don't have Mello around to blame for everything you know, anymore, but yeah. they have a huge hole at the four. They can't really play small or five out at basically any time. Uh, Westbrook's decision-making is just never going to get better. And I guess my takeaway from this you know, Thunder start, it's sort of how I felt when the season opened. You just have to admit they have no hope of being a contender. Once you admit that and once you come to terms with that, you're able to appreciate what Westbrook does on a different level because there's no expectations. If you actually think he's supposed to be an MVP guy who's going to win you lots of games and take you to the promised land, you're guaranteed to be disappointed. He's not that guy. His style will not work on that level. But once you remove that expectation and say, oh, you know, maybe they can be a 5, 6, seven, eight. See, then okay, now you can just appreciate what he does, sort of physically and athletically on the court. But to me, this is a team that could miss the playoffs. You know, and in, in not just in terms of what they've done in these first four games, but just who they are. If you're the worst team shooting the three pointer in the entire NBA, and you're playing in the Western Conference, that isn't just like a red flag. Like, oh wow, we need to like maybe improve that. That is a giant flaw that is going to be exposed night in and night out.
0: Yeah. You know, I I agree with you. It sounds insane to say they might miss the playoffs, but you and I had talked about this offline. Like, I could see it happening. And I first of all, let me add that I'm not gonna take the bait that you threw out there at the beginning of your answer, trying to paint me as this lifelong OKC believer. You are, you are. <laughs> you love that extension for Listers. Westbrook. They know the truth, okay? <laughs> they know the truth. That's all that matters. But with this year's team, and you know, people probably heard it on the preview podcast also, we're pretty down on them. I'm so down on them. Like, I know... We technically have to talk about them and the 0-4 Thunder are one of the biggest stories of the first week of NBA, you know? Uh, but I honestly don't have much to say except that I just don't really believe in this team in any way, shape, or form. It looks like they're at the end of the line and we're in year one of Paul George and Russell Westbrook making a combined $65 million and it's just not great. And the, the other thing that I would add is is that you have all these people saying that it will be different when Roberson gets back because this team was really designed to be kind of a defensive-oriented team that's able to grind out wins on the strength of their superstars. And, I, I mean, maybe that will be true, but coming off that injury, people counting on Roberson sound to me kind of like Sixers fans back in August talking themselves into what Markel Fultz was going to be and both of those situations are depressing for the player but if we're talking teams like you just have to be realistic like roberson's coming off a very serious injury and probably isn't going to be the same guy even when he does come back so it's just very dark in okc yeah let
1: me let, let me ask you this you know last week we were talking about cloning players to you know who could beat who I'll give you three Roberson's. Are you a contender if you're Oklahoma City? I'll give you three of them, not just one healthy one. You can have as many Roberson's as you want. Are they a top-shelf team in the Western Conference, given the limitations of their offense? I don't think so.
0: No, and I, and I think what should be even more concerning if you're OKC, and granted, like Westbrook started slow last year and then kind of played his way into shape as the season went on, and so it, it's possible that that happens this year uh, because last year was another season where he got knee surgery like a month before the year started, um, and, and it affected him coming out of the gate. So maybe that's what's happening here. But I also think that everyone should be on guard for the season where age and, and wear and tear catches up to Westbrook a little bit and his athleticism takes a little bit of a step back And once that happens, like his game is really going to start to take a hit because he is so reliant on being the best athlete on the planet, which in a lot of ways he has been over the last six or seven or eight years. But once that's not true anymore, he doesn't have many ways to really compensate. And, uh, And I think that's sort of what we saw last night is like he was settling for all sorts of bad shots. And he's not a good shooter. And that's that's the core problem in OKC is that, like, when you build your offense a guy, around a guy who's going to take 25 shots a night and he's not a good shooter, you're going to have problems.
1: Well, better late than never, Andrew. You came around to the right Westbrook take. It only took about two <laughs> years longer than it should. No, I'm kidding. Let me ask you this. This is a serious question. It's going to sound like a troll question. Is he going to make the All-Star team this year?
0: Ooh... That, that is a good question. I think Russ, I mean, he's one of the five biggest stars in the sport. So I think he might be grandfathered in regardless of where the thunder are by the time we get to like mid January. Um, I don't know. I I'll, I'll say yes. The the other question that I was thinking of watching the fourth quarter of that Celtics game Thursday night, uh, how long do you think Billy Donovan makes it this season? If it, if it, continues the way it's going hey
1: look don't try to throw this on me because i know you you think he's going to be gone by christmas
0: (laughs) see this is when we have these conversations offline it kind of takes away the the fun but yeah i i don't see him making it to like christmas let's say even december 1st might be a little bit optimistic
1: so let me ask you this though if you're sam prestey and you're a smart guy. You've thought through every angle. You know the strengths and weaknesses of your roster. You're now dealing with this like you know crazy changing NBA landscape where everybody's putting up 115 points every night, and you've only really got you know two and a half offensive threats. Can you really hold Billy Donovan responsible for this? Like, if your ownership, are you disappointed in your coaching staff, or are you looking at your roster thinking like, what's he really supposed to be doing? I mean, I don't think any smart general manager, and I think Sam Presti is that. And I don't think any owner who's dealt with Westbrook for this long mm-hmm. is going to expect a coach to be able to change him, right? That's just not how it works. They know that. You look at Paul George, you know, he's basically being Paul George, you know. The other guys aren't very good. I don't think it's a scheme thing. Uh, because I think Westbrook is so locked into playing how he plays that it, you, you can try to design this beautiful offense. He's not going to stick to it. Yeah. And the rest of their players are fundamentally flawed guys one way or another. So is it a Billy Donovan problem? I mean, are you just wasting money if you fire him? Or should they just be lowering expectations, which is sort of what I was hinting at at the top? Like, I think it's better for everyone if they just kind of admit you know, even internally, that they're not a contender, right? Because then the pressure on Billy Donovan, is like, okay, yeah. I mean, you're just the guy who's out there kind of stewarding Westbrook's crazy triple-double run, and we'll see where it goes, rather than you're the guy who can't put order and structure to the offense and, like, you know, lift this team to where it should go. It's like, they're just not that good.
0: Yeah, I think that is a really important point, and when you and I both raise the possibility of them missing the playoffs, like, it really shouldn't be as crazy as it probably is to say that out loud, but like they're in a different tier of the West than the Nuggets and the jazz and the Rockets and the teams that you can kind of just write in knowing that they're going to figure it out. Like OKC is in that sixth place to 10th place tier of, of the West. And, and you're right that they should probably shift expectations internally just for everyone's sake. The the Donovan question is pretty interesting, though. I mean, because if he were to be fired, the there would be an immediate chorus of people who come out and point out that like Russell Westbrook teams have had the same problems, no matter who's coaching, and the, the problem is not the coaches. Like that, I can guarantee there would be 200 people tweeting that um, within the hour. But I also think. There, that probably lets off Billy Donovan a little bit too easily, and probably lets off Scott Brooks a little bit too easily. I think both of those coaches have lacked imagination. And, uh, and I, you know, even with Billy Donovan, something as simple as just playing Alex Abrinas more than he has, like I would just run him out there and see what you can get because they've needed shooting, and there just aren't many other viable options I mean you could try to see if Terrence Ferguson if you play him 25 minutes a night see what you can get but like stuff like that just hasn't really happened and and Donovan hasn't been willing to experiment and eventually I think just shaking things up might be the only play Presti has
1: yeah I mean I I don't want to sound like a Billy Donovan apologist because I'm not a huge fan one way or the other I think he's kind of just a placeholder and yeah you know I, I don't really know what the amazing cases to be made for him as you know this this great coach but i do think like the nba's financial success has really put coaches in a weird spot like it's one thing if you're a coach and you're making like 2 or 3 million dollars and your best player say 10 years ago is making 15 million dollars yep like now you're a coach and your best player is on a 5 year 205 million dollar extension making $35.7 million this season. And his motto is now I do what I want, right? Or why not? Like what possible leverage do you have to get through to a guy who's making what seven, eight, nine times more money per year than you are? Like that's really pretty impossible. Like you're completely relying upon that superstar deciding that he wants to be coachable and to buy into your vision and not just do whatever he wants. And what did we see in the in the fourth quarter of a game that they completely choked away against Boston that Boston wanted to hand to him? Do you think Russell Westbrook stuck to the play call <laughs> when he jacked up a 30-footer off an inbounds play with 25 seconds left? No, it's, he did It's it. a he great did, point. He did whatever he wanted. He did exactly what a $35.7 million player would do when he's empowered to do whatever he wants based on the size of his contract.
0: Yeah. It's a really good point, and actually Billy Donovan came out after the game saying, you know, when Russ takes that shot, it's a good shot for us. I was very clear in the huddle that we did not need a three on that possession. <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> love it. I love that. That's the thing. That's what I would do too if I was him because you can't criticize him. You know, he can't do what Scott Brooks tried to do with John Wall a couple years ago before John got the big contract, yeah. where it was like massaging him and like kind of poking and prodding him. You can't pull a Stan Van Gundy against Westbrook. You could do that against Reggie Jackson. You can't do what Stan would do and just dress down his players in the media to Westbrook cuz then he's out. No, you know, look,
0: and- it's a really good point and it, and the same thing is happening as you mentioned with Scott Brooks and John Wall in DC. And I think that the reality is that, you know, both Billy Donovan and Scott Brooks are probably kind of league average coaches um and they have their hands tied for various reasons and various political reasons. I don't I don't think it's purely salary but just sort of the influence that Russ and Wall have over their organizations Um, and you know they might be fine I just I think ultimately the best argument for Donovan not making it through the season will be that like if the Thunder continue to struggle that's going to be the only play available to Sam Presti because it's not like they can go out and trade for a third star and it it may just be kind of a, a desperate attempt to try and right the ship
1: Okay, here's another real question that's going to sound trolly. Okay. How long until <laughs> <I love this. laughs> how long until Paul George regrets his decision?
0: Oh man. Okay. So here's I was thinking about this as the seconds wound down in Oklahoma City last night. I think the one positive that could emerge from just a total implosion in OKC this year is we could get to like March and and see Paul George give a a tell all interview where he just comes a hundred percent clean with the media <laughs> and says, Look, "I love this. <laughs> everything I said from July to mid October was ultimately not really that true. And here's why I really stayed in Oklahoma City because I still don't believe that he he was just like best friends with Russell Westbrook and wanted to keep that." relationship going and he loved the nature in Oklahoma like I don't know there's another shoe that's going to drop somewhere along the line here and so if things get really ugly who knows let's let's hear from PG loose lips Paul our
1: favorite yeah no and I'm not trying to break them up by any stretch but I just think when you sign four years and you had the opportunity to go short term you had the opportunity to play with LeBron you basically could have picked your contender as a destination. And then now you're looking at a situation where you're going to be on the West bubble, you know, and you're, you're seeing no progress and you're actually living the no progress too, which I do think matters. Like, I think to a certain degree, he talked himself into this idea that there was unfinished business for that Thunder team last year because of the way they lost against Utah. Yep. And when you're in it, it's very easy to believe that. But from an outsider's perspective, you know, we can look at it and objectively (laughs) say, like, you guys aren't going anywhere with this this group. Yeah,
0: the the day he signed, we could look at it and say, the business is not headed in a great direction, Paul. So I don't know what you think is unfinished, but... Good luck I mean and and we talked about it all spring I think the best move for him would have been going to Philly and I don't understand why that option wasn't discussed more It didn't have to be just because I think the Lakers thing there were politics between agencies and his agent Aaron Mintz did not have a great relationship with the Lakers front office and I think that all played into it. But it didn't have to be a binary choice between the Thunder and Lakers. Like there were other teams out there, and we slide Paul George onto the Sixers, and they're a contender too. And so
1: all of yeah, it. Here's the here's the worst part about it for Paul George. He can he force his way out again, or is he? <laughs> I was just like, thinking about that. Like can he survive? <laughs> like if he was trying to just pull another Indiana stunt? Yep wouldn't everybody be out on him i mean first of all we know the thunder fans would just cut bait with him immediately now they love him right now because he did pick them but if he tried to turn coat they would freak out and he would be public enemy number 1a right there next to durant right well it would be but kind of amazing I think...
0: because the it would be the ultimate lance stevenson heat check from paul george to turn around <laughs> a year after doing like five different cover stories and say look I want out. (laughs) Trade me now. And to be honest with you, I think that would kind of disqualify him from a number of teams, but there are plenty of desperate contenders who would be willing to trade for him and and talk themselves into Paul George. And look, again, I wouldn't even blame Paul George for making that move. And we should be clear that if we had any Thunder fans left who still listen to the podcast, I think they're done after this episode. But... We just got to be realistic.
1: Yeah, I mean I definitely would blame him for doing that and Really? I don't know. Yeah, well, he didn't have to sign a four-year deal, Andrew. He didn't have to go do all these stories. He didn't have to have the party with Nas smoking cigars on stage. It was all a lot. Like he, <laughs> They did the most in terms of that decision. So if he turns around in less than 12 months and it's just like, you know what? Everything that people were saying about us not being able to go anywhere was true. I needed a different place. That would be a big problem. Yeah, I think actually the most logical solution is is that Paul George has reached the same conclusion that I have, which is they can't win a title, and he's okay with that. And he just wants to enjoy playing on a good team and you know having very uh, low cost of living and a good place to raise his family. And if that's the case, then we probably need to judge him for that, don't we, a little bit?
0: Yeah. Um, Well, wait, what? No. (laughs) I was about to say that's perfectly fair. Good for him. (laughs) But... We have to judge him for that, too, is certainly its own take. Um, Yeah, you know what? Good luck to everyone in Oklahoma City. It can only get better from here, Um, but I don't see great things on the horizon for that team. One other question that I wanted to hit before we move to uh, the Rockets. Fisher said, With the rise of younger players like AD and Giannis breaking into the conversation of the best player in the league, Realistically, how open is the window for Kevin Durant to be the undisputed best player in the world? Could Durant go down as the best player to never be the best player in the NBA? So best player Andrew,
1: in history. Andrew, come on. You're the one who picks all these questions. You don't have to send in a burner account question <laughs> under the name Fisher just so you can slander KD for no reason. Come on, Andrew.
0: No, listen. I think the correct answer here is Durant is probably destined to go elsewhere this summer and he will be at the top of everyone's top 100 list going into next season. Not that we need to use top 100 lists as like the definitive metric for any of this. No, because we, we
1: don't need to use lists as a definitive metric. There's one list. Andrew.
0: <laughs> well, I'll, all I'm saying is that there are a lot of people who would argue that Durant has been the best player last year or the year before i think the answer to fisher's question kobe was never really the best player in the league while he was in while he was in his prime and uh i i think he may have a case as the best player in history to never be the best player in the nba at one time
1: so my thing with this is no one was saying Kevin Durant couldn't be the best player in the world when he was lighting up the Cavaliers during the finals, yeah. or when he was winning uh, the series with Anthony Davis at the Pelicans pretty easily, or when he's really truly ramped up, you know, in postseason form, you know, doing his thing. And so, look, we love Giannis more than anyone in the world, and we're pretty big Anthony Davis fans too. But don't forget about KD. All right. And I think it's so easy to do that. It's so easy to say, oh, Steph had 51, so let's diminish Kevin Durant. Or, you know, Kevin Durant went to the Warriors and it bothers us. Try to appreciate this guy in a vacuum. He is an unbelievable all-around basketball player. And, you know, you've pointed out his current circumstances maybe don't show, ideally, everything that he's capable of. But he's his ceiling is still there as a player. And yeah, yeah I think it's actually more likely than not he will be the number one guy on next year's list regardless of whether he moves just based on our personal criteria but i'm also willing to acknowledge that that would be an unpopular take because you're going to have the LeBron people who are going to be hanging on no matter what. Mm-hmm. You're going to have the Steph crowd, which is getting louder and louder with every 11 three-pointer game, right, in three quarters. Uh, and you're going to have these people who want to hop, hop on the hot new thing. And if Giannis and the Bucks win 55 or the Pelicans win 55 or one of those two teams sneaks into the conference finals, you know, those voices are going to get louder and louder. But don't take KD for granted. Just like I've, you know, been very boring and lecturing people not to take LeBron for granted, I think that KD might be the most taking for granted star we've had over the last ten years, and not just these past couple of seasons uh, in Golden State, but you know, back during uh, their Thunder run too.
0: Yeah, I-, I agree with that actually. And and there you go for both Fisher and anyone out there. The- that's half. The- and-, and you
1: <laughs> posing as Fisher, yes. <laughs>
0: Half the top 100 brain trust just hitting you off with the exclusive there. Kevin Durant is going to be next year's number one. NBA Reddit, write it down. Uh, Big news. But I agree with everything you just said. What I would add to that is that, and the reason I included this question, is that I do feel like this season we might be seeing more of a generational shift across the league, and, and it, the reason it was on my mind during the Thunder game is because, like, as Russ and Paul George recede, there's going to be room for a couple other guys to kind of move to the forefront and become some of the biggest stars in the, in the league today. And I think Giannis is obviously already there. Anthony Davis, the same thing. But you're going to have teams like the Nuggets and teams like the Jazz moving into kind of like mainstream conversation more than they ever have been. And even as LeBron gets a little bit older, we're going to start to see that. And I don't know. It's just something to monitor going forward. I mean, I've like... 10 different podcasts are, are talking about the scoring boom in the NBA and, and what it means. But I think there's also going to be kind of a bigger shift in terms of like the faces of the league this year.
1: Oh, it's a great point. I think you need to get on board with Jokic, by the way. I, I mean, am. This is un- unrelated. No, you've been hating on Jokic for years, but this is unrelated <laughs> to really anything. I got an email from the NBA marketing department that said they put together a highlight video of Jokic's no-look passes as, like, a way to tease that game last night, Uh and it got 32 million views on Facebook in under 24 hours. So that just proves the point you were trying to make right there. There's some big-time new faces coming up, and I think Jokic is one of them. He's got the international pull as well. Um, Look, it's harder to sell a guy who looks like me. There's there's no doubt about (laughs) it, but (laughs) he's a pretty special basketball player, and I frankly think that Jamal Murray is going to be a household name here in not too long. Uh, he'd he'd be another guy i put on that list um and you know we are seeing a little bit of a shift i mean the chris pauls and the russell westbrooks of the world um you know they're they're definitely entering a different stage uh of their sort of like day-to-day relevance
0: yeah yeah it's gonna be interesting to watch and one thing that you probably missed since you were at the actual lakers nuggets game
1: andrew i missed nothing when will you ever learn well
0: during the second half of that game they they had an interview with Jokic where Jokic came out and said Shaq can't guard me and then they cut to Shaq back oh, in the TNT studio and Shaq was like where's he from? Ukraine? And uh oh, no. and Ernie chimes in and says Serbia and he's and Shaq's like Serbian chicken that's what I'm gonna be having for dinner tonight and so it was great it was I just love Inside the NBA. I think they're very divisive among hardcore NBA internet fans, but uh, I can't get enough of it. And Shaq has grown on me over the years, which is the ultimate upset because I used to – he was not my favorite a couple years ago.
1: I think Prime Shaq could handle Jokic just fine. (laughs) What do do you think? I don't
0: think that's particularly controversial. Prime Shaq was fucking incredible. Um, But – Moving on to the other big news of the week. James says, After the Woj bomb was dropped that Houston are prepared to send four first round picks for Jimmy Butler, a lot of people's first reaction was to laugh at the Timberwolves' drafting record. It made me wonder, do you guys think some GMs look at their own draft history and use that to evaluate how valuable a draft pick is to their organization? Or do all GMs think they're good drafters? Basically, what I'm asking is, <laughs> is, is self-scouting a thing for GMs? I think this is amazing.
1: That's a hilarious question. I'm like picturing David Kahn being like, well, a top five pick, that's not very good. <laughs> like, I need to do better... <laughs> Yeah, you know, what I would say is I don't think any
0: GM actually has the self-awareness to do this. Um, I can say that as a Wizards fan, I I have gone down this road where I've talked myself into trades on the basis of, first-round picks not being as valuable to the Wizards because the Wizards' front office is not as good as other teams are. And so, like, I talked myself into, uh, I think it was the Bogdanovich trade a couple years ago where, like, the Wizards gave up the 21st pick in the draft. I was like, look, that's not going to make a difference regardless because I don't trust this team to draft the right guy. That player wound up being Jared Allen, who would have helped a ton in Washington. And so that trade is now super frustrating in hindsight but um but i think gms always have to believe in themselves for better or worse
1: yeah i think there is a wide variety of how executives view uh first round picks i've talked to a guy who has won executive of the year award who basically is like anything after 20 i don't care um and then obviously there's other gms who have made a point to like target you know, that, that 20 range or even the the early 30s in the second round because you got the favorable contracts and, and viewing those as like really prime, pristine assets, right? So I think it, uh, you know, depends largely on market conditions too, right? Like how much do you value draft picks if you're under the gun trying to win now, coaching or, or GMing for your job with the fan base that expects you to make the playoffs? I mean, that really distorts how much you would care. Sure. So I think there's a lot of factors that could lead to you know different views on the value of of draft picks and uh i don't know what do you think in terms of the basketball intelligentsia right now do you think they overvalue draft picks it does feel like the internet loves first round picks regardless of where they are even though we get what like eight to ten first round picks every year that actually matter
0: i definitely feel that that's that's an issue um I mean, I got in an argument about this yesterday with Spike Eskin, host of Rights to Ricky Sanchez. Uh, but he was comparing this to the Nets trade and, and was basically saying it would be crazy to give up four first-round picks for one year of Jimmy Butler. First of all, if Houston did it, I don't think they would be doing it thinking they're only going to have Jimmy for one year. I think they would probably be talking to his agent about long-term commitments and uh,
1: operating that, that Chris Paul max contract handshake, exactly. that, that that kind of a conversation right.
0: yeah. operating in the gray area. I think Maury has, has been in that territory before. Um, but I also feel like, you know, first round picks generally aren't going to be the top five picks that the, the Nets gave the Celtics, you know, and, and if you're giving up, even if you assume that Houston is going to kind of, regress to the middle of the league in the middle of the next decade, which I think is a pretty fair assumption. If Maury is able to keep them half decent, it's probably going to be like the 17th pick going to Minnesota in 2025. And like the 17th pick in 2025 is not going to make or break the fate of either team. And so I think I would do the deal if it, even if it took four first round picks for Jimmy Butler because wow, there. I mean, look, the next two years um, or the next three years because you can't trade picks in, in successive drafts. So let's say the next three years, the the, the Rockets are going to be drafting in the 20s, um, probably the late 20s. So giving up those two picks is not super valuable um, or it's not a, a, a meaningful sacrifice anyway. So you're really talking about two potentially really valuable first round picks to give yourself a a real shot at a title for the next couple of years. And the other thing that I would add is that people who are on the fence here probably haven't watched enough Rocket games this year because
1: that team just looks dead and kind of lost and Well, that's my concern. Like you don't want to be so angry at Michael Carter Williams that you start handing out all your draft picks (laughs) for a decade. Like that is called an overreaction. That's fair. But I'm with you. They have been very flat, not fun to watch. They don't really have that esprit de corps that they had last season. And that's concerning. I'm just not sold that Jimmy Butler is the answer. Now, in terms of your logic... Let's rewind and say Kevin Durant had forced his way out of Oklahoma City, like at the trade deadline before he came up as a free agent. Yeah, I would have strongly argued that he would be worth four first-round picks to the Golden State Warriors in that scenario, because he's guaranteeing you a championship window of five years if he comes and resigns. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, same thing for the Lakers and LeBron James last year. Let's say instead of you know kind of convincing Kobe Altman to totally overhaul their roster. What if LeBron James had just pulled the plug and said, look, you know, enough beating around the bush. I don't want to do this anymore. Just trade me to the Lakers. If the Lakers had given up four first-round picks for LeBron, knowing that he was going to sign the four-year contract this summer, I would have been totally on board with that. It does sound crazy, you know, in a vacuum on the internet that you're overpaying and, you know, you're, you're getting these guys and you're tying your whole franchise future to one player. But when you're talking about players on that level... It's totally worth it, even if some of those picks somehow wound up uh, being lottery picks. Uh, it would be okay. Wow. So, I just hold don't on. think.
0: Let me push back yeah. on the LeBron in LA side of that. I don't know if I would have done that if I were the Lakers, and and I think the reason this makes sense for the Rockets is like you can at least make a case that they are one superstar away, uh, particularly if they're able to keep Eric Gordon in this deal. You slide Jimmy Butler into that starting lineup, and that, that gives them a pretty compelling counterpoint to what Golden State is bringing to the table in the conference finals. They wouldn't be favored, but they would have a shot. And that is good enough to me to justify the deal, um, particularly because, look if, look, if Golden State breaks up this summer and Kevin Durant goes elsewhere, then suddenly the Rockets are, are in even better position. And so... It makes sense for a couple different reasons. Also, the Houston could turn around and, and trade Chris Paul if the Rockets uh, get too expensive here. But, yeah, I mean... T-
1: well, so that, that was that's where I was going. I don't think Butler is worth four picks to them because I don't think he raises their ceiling that much. First of all, offensively, he's going to be a catch-and-shoot player yeah. because that's what everyone does around Harden. That's not going to change. No matter how much talent you bring there, Harden is not going to radically alter... Uh, how he plays. Second of all, in terms of, you know, defensive fit, like they are going to need him to basically play like the P.J. Tucker role, right? I mean, isn't he almost like their backup center? I mean, of course he's going to play wing guys too, right? But part of why you're bringing him is to have that like interior force. He can do that, but I don't think you really want him doing that for the next three or four years. And I do think it raises their defensive ceiling. It definitely increases their versatility, but I don't think that, you know based on how their early season play has gone, that that turns them into like this A-list juggernaut, right? Like it may help them get back closer to where they were last year. uh, But I don't think it's like a transformative, like, you know, lifting you up on a Golden States level type move. And so then now you're banking on another team blowing up, uh, you know, in, in the short term to, you know, open a championship window. I just don't think that that core group, Chris, Jimmy, and James is an ideal big three where you're going to have to be paying those guys more than a hundred million dollars collectively. And you're going to be filling out the rest of your roster with minimum salary guys going forward. I just don't think they're that good of a core three that it's worth mortgaging your future to that degree.
0: Yeah. And that's a perfectly fair way to look at it. And and I think the skeptic and it sounds like you are the skeptic uh, would say that Jimmy creates a lot of the same challenges for his team's that Russ creates in OKC and um, there's not really a way to make him part of a collective that utilizes everything that makes him great individually and uh, and that's that's a real concern and should be a concern for anyone who's trading for Jimmy Butler. I just think that this particular Rockets team is already clearly headed nowhere not just this season but next season as Chris Paul gets older he's still going to be very expensive. James Harden is still going to be, you know, you're going to come into every season wondering what version of James Harden you're going to be getting. And so, they're not far off from things getting pretty dark in Houston. And and to me, I don't I have no idea how the Rockets actually feel about this, but like to me, that seems almost inevitable. And given that reality, I would roll the dice and see what's possible. It's not guaranteed to work, but at least you'd have a shot. Whereas right now, I think they're on the outside looking in.
1: Uh, how much do you buy this whole take that like Maury can be as risky as he wants because he can always get another job? Like that was a, a real popular Twitter sentiment. Wow, of like, interesting. Well, he, he he's motivated to be ultra aggressive because you know, he's <laughs> viewed as like a top three GM, right? What do you That's think?
0: That's actually a really interesting point because we also don't necessarily know how Maury feels about the new owner in Houston, Tillman Fertitta, and that could be an X factor where Maury's like, "Yeah, I' not thrilled with the way things have gone down here. I miss Leslie Alexander. And here, I'm gonna f- mortgage our 2025 team. And by then, I will be in Philadelphia, or uh, I can't think of other teams that would need a GM. But yeah, that that is plausible to me. But I also think this makes sense regardless. For there, there are rational reasons to do this.
1: I just like the idea that you know Tillman Fortino, who's made all this money in the casino business, is considering trading four first-round picks like right <laughs> off the bat. It's like okay, like, you're going to the craps table. I see, yeah, ex- big big stacks.
0: Well, also before we move on, can we talk about the wolf side of this because the Minnesota situation and Rob Mahoney did a great job writing about this this week. Um, it was a very succinct article, kind of capturing how screwed minnesota is in the short term while they wait for some of this to play out but for anyone who didn't see it cat against the raptors was just incredible there's a video i came across on nba reddit earlier this week and the title is cat is a uh it rhymes with wussy um and it's just Five minutes of highlights from that Toronto game where Kat looks completely disinterested in playing basketball. And it's all set to the Taylor Swift song, Why You Gotta Be So Mean. And it's because it starts with Jimmy Butler's comments. And the whole thing is incredible. It's mean. I feel guilty for enjoying it as much as I did. But the Wolves continue to be uh, entertaining and an endless source of dark comedy.
1: Watching Cat it looked like he has his heart broken. I mean that's what it looked like in the Toronto game. So I don't know if there's something going on off the I court wondered
0: that and... too. I was like, you know, the only thing that could explain this is is if there's like some personal issues that we don't know about.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the counterpoint to that is these are how many points Cat scored, okay? 8 12 31 17 14 let me have you guess which of those games jimmy didn't play <laughs> the 31 <laughs> well so that that correlates pretty strongly um but yeah i i think they need to get cat back and i'm not sure you can get cat back without trading jimmy right and i think that's where the urgency comes from if you're minnesota it's like You don't know what you're going to be in the future. You're probably not going to be a playoff team if you do trade Jimmy Butler. Let me rephrase that. You're not going to be a playoff team if you trade Jimmy Butler. But you certainly don't want to be the team that has an unmotivated or disinterested Carl Anthony Towns and an unmotivated and disinterested Andrew Wiggins on your books for the next four years on gigantic salaries. I mean, that is basically as dark as it gets so If it requires trading Jimmy to just sort of get Cat out of that funk, you better do it. Yeah,
0: and watching Cat against the Raptors, I mean, he was making a concerted choice to kind of play in the most half-assed way possible. I mean, some of the passes he was throwing were just like, come on, man, at least kind of fake it here. And he got called out by the (laughs) announcer, Jim Peterson.
1: Yeah, have we ever seen a player make a trade demand on behalf of another player? Because I think that's what Cat was doing. He was like demanding a trade on behalf of Butler with that It player.
0: was unbelievable. And uh, one final update, my friend from Minneapolis texted me after that Raptors-Wolves game and said he would bet $50,000 that the Wolves won't make a conference finals in the next 25 years. So, spirits continue to be high across players, management, and fans in Minnesota.
1: Um, wow, that's a that's a Wizards-like <laughs> run. Wow. 25 <laughs> years with no conference finals. Wow. Yep.
0: Um. Moving on here, Noah says, speaking of the Wizards, Noah says, Sharp, your Wiz couldn't even keep it close enough for Steph to get on the floor for even a minute in the fourth quarter come on man there were records to be broken and Noah, i apologize i know you're a warriors fan but i also ask that you not get greedy because you got to see steph look supernatural for the entire first three quarters and that was amazing enough so you don't need to twist the knife with and remind me that i'm a fan of the team he dropped 50 on so um I don't know. Did you see any of that game?
1: Yes, Andrew. I saw the greatest individual performance <laughs> of this season. It felt like 2016. And that's an easy take, but there was a certain special flavor to that you 2015-16 know, season from Steph where it's like, okay, let's see shots that we've never, ever seen before. Yeah. And some of them that we haven't even conceived of. I mean, the way he's pulling up off the dribble, going crazy directions, off all sorts of angles, people in his face you know, he's not set. I mean, one-legged shots in certain circumstances and just draining absolutely everything. And then to see the bench reaction, to see the opposing team's reactions. I mean, how many <laughs> different Wizards players were like posterized by Steph three-pointers, you know, like this look of abject horror as he's pulling up over them. Uh, it was very, very special performance. It was I mean, great. It,
0: the, they, I had the same reaction as most of the Wizards and I think that was one of the best parts of that game is like you you would see Steph hit like a 37 foot three on Kelly Oubre and Oubre is just like, what do you want me to do? Like, are you kidding me? And so that was me. I was like, a couple people emailed kind of like taunting me after that game. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I love Steph Curry more than any player in the league. And that was exactly what I was looking for out of the Wizards Warriors game. If I'm going to stay up, I want to see Steph go off for like 50 or 60. Um, and he's been unbelievable to start the season. I don't want to jinx anything, but it, it does kind of feel like a, a reprise of that MVP year in 2016.
1: A little bit of an I'm here, I'm back uh, mode from Steph Curry. You know, remember when he did that against the Blazers? Yeah. He's pounding his chest in the in the playoffs. It kind of feels like he's doing that for an entire season this year uh the mvp talk that people have been thrown out there is totally justified for him uh you know that's probably an oversight on our behalf i remember last year didn't we both pick him as mvps like predict yeah we were predicting the big like comeback year for Steph. maybe we were just a year early Andrew. maybe that's what happened
0: yeah and speaking of chest pounding the other thing i wanted to add coming out of that game is watching steph in those first three quarters it just like i mean I started thinking about what my life would be like if Steph were on my favorite team. And I got to watch him just tear through the league and make every other point guard look hopeless. And, you know, I mean, he like, Russell Westbrook looks great until he plays Steph Curry. And then you're just like, how has anyone ever believed in Russell Westbrook? <laughs> and, and so... I thought about it, and I just can't even imagine how insufferable I would be if I got to have Steph on my team. Like, I I would honestly have to leave the internet because I would alienate too many people, and Warriors fans are pretty bad, but I guarantee I would be 10 times worse than them.
1: Can I tell you the funniest thing that I've heard all year is this guy on this podcast who said if you clone Bradley Beal eight times, <laughs> you could beat the Warriors. That was you, Andrew. It's all After about seeing center game, of gravity, man. I, it makes sense. That's what I'm saying. Let's. I'll give you 12 Bradley Beals. On the court at the same time, so you're playing twelve on five. <laughs> do you do you really think that you could stop Steph Curry now that you've watched him just dismember your Washington Wizards? Uh, in well, person? look
0: when Steph is in in a zone like he was on Wednesday night, there's no one on earth who can stop him or his team. So. I will concede that point. I'm just, he doesn't always look like the greatest player in the history of basketball. So I think on, on many nights, a team full of five to eight Bradley Beals would have a good shot against the Warriors.
1: <laughs> There's no chance. <laughs> they could take the court with them, they're not going to beat him. Well, moving on,
0: um, Greg says Can we please talk about how awful Dario Saric was against Detroit? 2 of 11 from 3, and Blake Griffin dropped 50 on him, almost exclusively on Dario, except for OT. And there were just awful turnovers. He bricked an open 3 to win it in regulation. I'm not sure I can watch another 78 games of this. Am I alone? Is there a trade market for Saric, do you think? Um, I doubt that you have any passionate Dario takes, but I'll throw this to you.
1: Uh, I don't, I mean, I think just be patient. Don't judge a guy on his worst day. Dario is a good basketball player and don't judge Blake Griffin on his best day either. Like everyone's like, Oh, what a great Blake Griffin. Trade. Well, not that many people said that, but I did see some saying like, well, if Blake's going to play like this, it wasn't that crazy of an idea. Well, okay. Like let's <laughs> pump the brakes. If Blake averages 50, I can hear what you're saying. Uh, I want Blake to to play like that consistently because it was really That's fun great. to see him energized and, And the play at the end that Dwayne Casey called like the fake triple handoff, the power move to the basket uh, was beautifully executed and and beautifully conceived. But uh, let's just chill. But from Philly's standpoint, are they the most disappointing team in the early season? To me, they are because I had my expectations up pretty high. Fultz is just an unbelievably rough watch. And I've already said that multiple times. We don't need to go down that road that much. But, you know, they're... They're overall like, hey, we can beat you with our best five, and our best fives locked in together. That vibe just hasn't been there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the absence of the shooters. I don't know if it's Dario struggling. Um, I don't know if we can just pin this all on Fultz, but to me, they've been the biggest disappointment in the NBA.
0: Yeah, it hasn't been great, and I, it, I wouldn't call them disappointing because I, this is the season I expected for them. I think there are going to be some nice stretches, and there are going to be some stretches – that make everybody go back to the, the offseason and wonder why there weren't more moves made. And um, and I think the Sarich aspect is important to highlight because he played great for them last year, and I think some of that was real, but it's also not necessarily realistic to expect him to be like a dead-eye three-point shooter next to Ben Simmons. And if he's not going to be that guy then his fit is a little bit tricky in Philadelphia and he's going to be due for an extension in a couple years. And so the questioner, Greg, I don't know what the trade market for Saric is. Um, And Saric, like personally, he's my favorite guy to interview in Philadelphia and one of my favorites in the league. Like he's great. But if I were the Sixers, I would at least be exploring what they could get because as a long-term fit on that roster, He's he's not great, and and I think they would be better off if they could find a couple starters who made more sense and play Dario off the bench, but Saric may be a little bit too good for that role, and so it, it leaves Philly in a tricky spot.
1: Well, what's the part problem you have with his fit? Because I see a guy who could play multiple positions, move pretty well. I do think he's a better shooter than he's shown so far this season. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't be giving up on Saric. No, no, no chill out chill out greg okay but what what what's what is the focus of your concern over there so if
0: you trust his jumper the fit is okay he's not great on defense he got exposed repeatedly in that boston series but that doesn't necessarily mean he can't work for them for the first seven or eight months of the year um so it's not a crisis by any means. It's just not ideal if you're looking to build this team for the next three to five years, which clearly, like, everyone in Philly is trying to take the long view here and and maximize this
1: championship window. Um, And so... Yeah, move the goalposts <laughs> after you got embarrassed by the Celtics. I, we know how that goes. Well, right, no, Andrew? I mean,
0: that's part of the reason they're starting Fultz. And so I would just be careful about penciling in Saric to that future if I were the Sixers. Um, But... It it's a murky trade market too because again like if he's not going to be shooting 40 percent from three and and he does have some limitations on defense like it it complicates his fit in a lot of different situations
1: yeah just to rewind really quick on carl anthony towns and his body language it reminded me of anthony bennett back in the day. And Anthony Bennett also reminds me at times of Markel Fultz too. Like this guy, when he doesn't have the ball or he's not engaged, man, he is, he is like 75% checked out regularly. And that just bothers me. Like, come on, you're being handed a starting spot. You're supposed to be the guy who takes this team over the top. Clearly there's, there's a need for you to prove yourself here. And half the time he's going through the motions. Yeah. I mean,
0: speaking of cat though, you know what the town's game reminded me of is like do you remember when andrew bynum was on the Cavs about like six oh, or no. seven years ago and there were rumors about him or reports coming out of a Cavs practice where he showed up and just shot threes the entire time and did his best to alienate like the entire coaching staff that's what cat reminded me of against the raptors is like yeah he was doing everything he could to send a message that he was not okay with the status quo
1: yeah, I mean, if airballing a three that you barely even tried with wasn't enough, he, like, firmly requested out of the game, which was, you know, it's just like, Tibbs, in case you're not getting the message, let me send it to you directly. It's
0: pretty incredible. Um, moving on, Cameron says, Hey, guys, I have a simple solution to the Jaron Jackson Jr. nickname dilemma. He should henceforth be known as Trey J. You're welcome, and i support that trey J is pretty solid he shoots threes he and it's much better than trying to say jjj every time he does something cool so do you have any thoughts
1: well in portland they call cj three three j sometimes okay so are we are we bordering into that territory what if we just call him Jaron? is he good enough to be a one-name superstar
0: (laughs) no he's not he's his game is too subtle for the one name thing. I think he's good at a lot of little things, but he's going to need some sort of nickname to kind of elevate him to the mainstream. Um, the one concern... I
1: disagree. I'm calling him Jaron from now on. You can go ahead and do Trey J or whatever. I mean, it sounds like an R&B singer. And he's, he's too you know futuristic and modern to be like a 1990s r&b well i
0: was gonna say it it reminds me of ray j which makes me think of the kardashian tape and it's never good when your nickname conjures a sex tape but uh the general point yeah no that's funny
1: that my my mind did not go there at all but thanks
0: (laughs) (laughs) well sorry apologies to you and jared jackson jr and everyone who wasn't thinking of the kardashian tape but uh
1: and Elizabeth, please apologize <laughs> Look, to the most important. Yeah, I
0: didn't did I say sex tape? I mean, I thought I tried to say just tape. Uh, but Trey J JJJ Jared Jackson Jr. He does need a nickname. We can't just settle for Jaren, but he's been very good. And also apologies to Marvin Bagley Jr. who has been Pretty solid, actually, for the Kings, and uh, no matter what happens, he's going to have a better career than Darko, uh, which Kings fan Henry pointed out coming off the last podcast. Yeah, you caught some
1: flack for that, because you were comparing this year's draft class to the 2003 class, and you said maybe Bagley's going to be in the Darko mold, so you're already ready to move off of that? Well, no. You're not going to stand up and and defend that take? I mean... (laughs) What's he really done besides put up some empty stats for a bad team? Come on, dig dig in here.
0: (laughs) What I was saying is that of the the five guys in this year's top five, Bagley is the one I'm least confident in. But I think I forgot just how disastrous – Darko's run actually was. And Bagley, <laughs> yeah. like, no matter what, Bagley's going to have like a 10 to 15 year career and he'll have some really nice stretches and put up some good numbers. So I don't want to put him in Darko territory. And look, there's a chance that all five of the top five could be good. So that's a possibility too.
1: Yeah, I think you were also comparing him to J- Jaleel Okafor not too long ago. I do think Bagley, because of his. I guess, length and above the rim ability and his just raw speed and fluidity uh, movement-wise, his floor to me is actually pretty high and obviously much higher than Jaleel's floor because Jaleel's floor is like out of the league in two years, right? Um, I do think he's always going to be able to find, you know, even a modestly useful role um you know, whether it's just as an energy big or a guy who crashes the glass or whatever like that's his floor uh and like you're saying 10 to 15 year career there makes sense and i do think his ceiling will be determined by how well Sacramento develops him and that's why i'm so worried about it because you know that's where a lot of prospects you know have kind of you know gone to die over these years and and i just hope that you know we get to see his ceiling rather than just settling for a, a an energy guy when he's got gifts that suggest he could be much more than that
0: I agree and it's also hard to know how much his weaknesses matter when he's in Sacramento because like that whole team is disastrous defensively and so you can't pin the defense on him but that was one of the biggest questions coming into the league is like where do you put this guy on defense how does he affect your your team's scheme overall all of that stuff is premature for a rookie on a lottery team but like That's the thing. Like, he could be really, really good if he can figure out a way to be average on defense.
1: Yeah, well said. Um,
0: All right. Speaking of another team that's not great on defense, uh, we've got a couple Bulls questions here. So I'm going to read three Bulls questions and then we could talk Chicago for a little bit. Ruben says. Are the Bulls potentially the worst team in the Eastern Conference? They are 0-3. They got thrashed by the Sixers and lost to two pretty irrelevant teams in the Pistons and Mavericks. It's obviously early, but this team doesn't have much to show for it besides Levine's hot start. Uh, Obviously, that came before they beat the Hornets the other night. And then Cole said in the subject line, all caps, Fuck Jabari, give Bobby his money. Um, (laughs) So I'm not going to... He continued in the body of the email, but that's the essence there. Um, And then Anthony said, being a Bulls fan is a lot like binge drinking. Every weekend you say you're done, but what the hell is going on with Zach Levine in the opening stretch of this season? The dude is averaging 31 points through the first four games, and he is efficient, I'm still obviously not sold on him, and defense is an issue. But without Lowry and Chris Dunn, Levine has kind of taken charge. Is this just a product of poor defense throughout the league? The poor AAA teams the Bulls have played? Is he an early, early candidate for most improved player? Where will he fit in the Bulls' development? And then he signs off the email with, Why, 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 why? Which is a great Bulls fan sentiment.
1: Very (laughs) inspiring.
0: Yeah, I mean, we rarely get a chance to talk about the Bulls because they have not been relevant for like five years. But I always love Chicago emailers. They are the most entertaining team emailers we have, I'd say. Um, So let's take it one by one, Ben. Number one... I think that the worst team in the East has to be the Cavs at this point. It's only been a week, but I, I wouldn't put the Bulls at the bottom, would you?
1: You're correct. Um, Chicago's also had a ton of injury issues, like just up and down their rotation. So I think that factors into both Levine's start, because he's the only guy left who can shoot the basketball, yeah. and just you know their record and their overall like play. I mean, I, I do think they're really bad they're going to be really bad there's basically no way around it and i never saw them as a potential playoff team um uh, but i do think they've probably had the worst injury luck of any team in the league yeah
0: um that's fair they were always going to be pretty rough this year though just because of their injury or not injury because of their defense um the, de- the defense is going to be injured all year long uh regardless of who's out there
1: yeah season ending <laughs> defensive <laughs> exactly. injuries but hey, Hey, let me ask you on Levine though, because it's a guy who you want to like. I mean, he's right in your wheelhouse. He has had a really hot yep. start. Are you back in? Are you skeptical? Are you feeling more, you know, nuanced and and pulled towards guys like me who say, "Come on, like don't don't get distracted by the uh, by the new, you know, flashy light." I mean, what do you think?
0: I'm glad you asked, Ben, um, because you know, yeah, I. <laughs> Look, Levine is a pure scorer from Seattle. He plays with my hero, Jamal Crawford, every summer, and all of that. He checks a lot of boxes that I'm looking for out of a basketball player. But honestly, even beyond all that, he looks legitimately great through the first week, and I don't want to jinx it. It's four games, basically. But he's been really impressive, and I think that, you know— What's most encouraging is probably his ability to get to the rim and get to the line. I mean, he's getting seven or eight free throws every game, um, which is not nothing like that. Once you enter that territory, you're you're in league with like Harden and all the best players, all the best scorers from the guard position in the NBA. And, uh, and then he can still hit from the outside. I think what I've noticed thus far, and I haven't watched like a ton of Bulls, I watched the Bulls-Hornets game, which was probably Levine's best game of the season, so I'm a little bit biased. But he's cut out a lot of the like ridiculous 21-foot pull-ups, and and he's attacking the rim more than he was a year ago in Chicago, which could just be a function of health. But I think that some of this could end up being real and and the player that he's going to be.
1: I mean, he should improve that stuff naturally as he ages, right? So that's that's good to see. That means he's on track a little bit. My concerns at this point are with everybody injured, it's basically like, Oh, do whatever you want, it does not matter. How is he going to function when Lowry's back? Uh, when he's trying to split touches, play within an offense and not just sort of, you know, doing whatever he wants to do. I kind of think like their early season chaos here has been like specifically designed almost to like make him look good. The best he can possibly yeah. look, and I, I still want him to, to see him as a part of a highly efficient team offense. Meaning he's not just shooting well from the field or, or scoring points efficiently, but he is lifting his team, uh, you know, to a better offensive efficiency mark than they have without him. And I want to see that when he's playing with other guys who need to have you know touches and shots to be effective, because sharing is an issue for him. You know, right. distributing, playmaking, uh, those are all issues. And then defensively, like they're also really having to work around him, right? Like Jabari Parker gets, you know, dumped to the second unit, not only because he's not very good at basketball, but if you have to play him and Levine together for huge minutes, it's just so easy to pick on one or both of those guys on the other end. And that's where I just don't really see Zag making a lot of improvement. Yeah. Uh, And I think that will hold you back. Like, you know, that will probably keep you into a you know, super valuable six man type player on a good team role. If you're just a complete net negative on defense and and you never make any progress there. And I I think that my my concern for his career is that he doesn't have a lot of motivation in Chicago to improve that weakness, right? Like they're bad. They're going to be bad this year. He's already gotten paid. They're paying him like a, you know, a top two or three option type guy. They're going to be bad for the foreseeable future. Where is the desire to improve defensively going to come from other than him just deciding to completely commit to it? And I guess I just don't view him as that type of player. If he winds up being this all-around two-way guy, you know, a leader-type personality who's going to, like, drag the Bulls to the, the eighth seed next season, I will be shocked. And if that happens, you know, I will tip wow. my Wow.
0: Way to bring the party down. You know, I just... I'm... i
1: Oh, look, it's it's so easy to get excited. Oh, a guy scored 35. <laughs> so easy.
0: No, I agree with about half of what you're saying. I think the real question and the concern that is is perfectly valid in Chicago is how Levine fits into a scheme that does have Lowry Markkinen and, and does have a couple other threats on the court. And, and how that affects his game is going to be really interesting to watch because it is... So far, he's been efficient and that's great, but he also is. He's getting every look um, on that team right now. And uh, it's much harder to be efficient when your touches are cut in half and you're not starting every possession from your ideal spot. And so that's an open question and that's very fair. What I would push back on a little bit is I don't know if his defense is going to be a make-or-break issue. I think the offense, if the offense stays where it is and you can score that well, defense is secondary. And And we've seen that with a bunch of different guards around the league. And uh, And the, the question is going to be how consistently he can stay at an elite level on offense because... If he can just get to mediocre defensively, he'll be okay. I think if if you're worrying about the future in Chicago and defense, the guy you would want to worry about is Lowry because it's much harder to build a decent team defense around a shitty big man uh, defender than it is a
1: guard. Mediocre on defense for him seems basically impossible. And again, like he's got to translate his individual offense to team offensive success, right? That, that, those are my two big question marks. And I think even a rosy view of Levine's future would require him to make huge strides to get to mediocre on defense and also require him to basically fundamentally rewire as an offensive player so that he doesn't have blinders and, you know, he becomes a more of a playmaker type I mean, he's almost to me like you've got Harden on one extreme where he's like scorer and playmaker. Then you've got Booker, who's like definitely more scorer than playmaker. But trying to become a playmaker, yeah. right, and like kind of trying to follow in that mold, and then you've got Levine even further to the right <laughs> <Totally>. of Booker, <laughs> where it's just like a hundred percent, well, ninety nine point nine seven percent score, and then point zero three percent playmaker, and it's like the the gap that he has to you know traverse to get himself more towards the the super efficient type lead option that you're describing is pretty wide, and he's not nineteen yeah. years old, right? Like he's already what twenty three or something like that, so. Uh, th- those are my causes for concern. And I realize I'm raining on the parade, but that's well, what
0: Well, I'll have you know that I have seen enough to be back in on the Zach Levine bandwagon, although I do... My heart is all in on Levine after this week. My head recognizes that you are making some valid points here, and particularly with regard to Devin Booker. I've seen some people on Twitter saying, why do we celebrate Devin Booker and not Zach Levine after this first week? And it's like... Devin Booker does have better instincts as a distributor and a creator and a playmaker than Levine has shown over the first like three or four years of his career. So that's completely fair.
1: The other thing I'd say too, and I'm being too mean on Levine, so I'm going to try to be a little bit nicer it
0: down. Okay.
1: For me, when, when you look at their contract decisions from this past summer, Jabari, to me, is an outright disaster. You know, honestly,
0: Jabari's deal might be the worst decision in the NBA over the last 12 months. And and it doesn't come with a lot of long-term consequences. So the Bulls are not going to take as much heat as they should for this. But it just made absolutely no sense. It's shocking to me.
1: Yeah, and so I guess I was trying to say, don't paint the Levine deal because that was a tough one for them too. They had to swallow hard to pay that, you know, after Sacramento comes out of basically nowhere with that offer and then they're thinking they're going to get him at a better deal. They had to swallow hard to match that, yep. right, for for Levine. But to me, that deal's probably going to wind up okay if he continues to progress like mm-hmm. this. Uh, I don't think it's going to be great, but it's going to be all right. The, the Parker one is just already dead on arrival, right? It's already has been proven to be horrible so don't lump those don't paint those with the same brush those are two different situations one deal that you know you you caught like the short end of the stick the other you just beat yourself over the head
0: (laughs) that's a perfect place to close out our bi-monthly bulls discussion podium here we'll do two quick questions First from Jeff, who says, I have an addendum to Ben's Alice Fultz analogy from last week's podcast. It's not about calling Foltz a wife or a girlfriend. The Sixers committing to start him is the equivalent of bringing your significant other home to meet your family or attending a wedding with them as your plus one. If you only spend time with your significant other during off-peak hours and you never test the parameters of the relationship, you aren't giving yourself a chance to experience what life would be like if they were something more. To keep this analogy going, this is the only way to find out whether the Sixers should call off the engagement with Fultz. Maybe he will make a bad impression at dinner, but at least then Philly can move on with confidence that the answer lies elsewhere. Not to mention, Foltz will have gotten a genuine opportunity to prove himself.
1: Yeah, Fultz is falling asleep at the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner table. He's spilling wine on your mom's you know, white dress. Uh, uh, he's antagonizing Uncle Ben Simmons. I mean, this is not going Are you well.
0: happy with what you've created here, this this world <laughs> that we have?
1: <laughs> because I don't know. I, I I do like that your wife's name is Alice, by the way, because this is very like Alice in Wonderland <laughs> alternate reality <laughs> metaphors, and it just fits perfectly. Oh,
0: man, yes. Bringing my wife into the pod turning Markel Foltz into a desperate spinster it's great work from you over the last couple weeks um, <laughs> we'll close out with a celebrity listener Mike Trudell who says two questions please number one for Sharp Golliver knows the question you can't be tipped off and number two for Golliver, if you could construct any Lego figure without instructions what would it be how many pieces? How tall? Where would you locate it? And um, first of all, I love hearing from Mike Trudell, the number one Lakers reporter, and your new roommate at Staples Center. Um, and-
1: so, first of all, Mike was very offended you didn't include this on last week or uh, the last episode. <laughs> so we have carried this over to make sure we can appease our uh, our celebrity contingent. His question for you is very simple, Andrew. We got into a heated discussion about hip hop, as we often okay. do. And he wants to know, what is the recipe for a Tupac Shakur thug passion? Do you know it off the top of your head? Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> That's a deep cut. To, back to like 1994.
1: Um, I- and let me, as you think, the reason why we were discussing it, it was sort of an age-related question. He's a couple years older than okay. I am. And he's got that song memorized you know, by heart. I was able to answer the question, but we were wondering if the age gap, you know, towards people maybe a couple years younger who weren't, you know, bumping Tupac in middle school because they were in (laughs) elementary school, maybe that would sort of, uh, you know, Change, you know, or warp your experience with Tupac? Do you have an answer? Um,
0: I have some thoughts. First of all, you're right that there was an age gap there. I had a Tupac CD when I was in, I believe, fifth grade or sixth grade.
1: Oh, that explains so much. That's too well. young, Andrew. You can't be doing that.
0: <laughs> so I was playing it in my bedroom one day when my mom walked in during the song "Hit 'Em Up." and (laughs) no andrew she walked right over to the cd player and took out the cd and took it out to the driveway and drove over the cd with her car (laughs) (laughs) so that was my first tupac experience and of course off of that i immediately fell in love and was like tupac's my new favorite rapper sorry mom um
1: yeah, terrible parenting <laughs> yeah, strategy by her. Really sh- <laughs> just classic case of one oh one reverse exactly. psychology backwards. Short term
0: thinking from my mom. Um to answer Mike's question though, so when I started to get into like high school, me and my friends would drink Hypnotic and Hennessy, which was called the Incredible Hulk. And so that was like Ooh. 2000, 2001, one, two thousand two time, um, in terms of like where hip hop was. Thug Passion. I have no idea. My guess would be that it has Alize in it, but I have no idea.
1: You got it. One part Alize, one part Cristal. And look, we do wow. not endorse underage drinking under any circumstances. Can't believe you would just casually flip that around. I mean, very, <laughs> very Georgetown oh, prep. Oh god, you. But, don't put that on me. Uh, um, in terms of his other question. Um, the best Lego structure. I will say I was incredibly inspired by seeing the gigantic Multnomah Falls uh, Lego construction they've got at the PDX airport. Okay. It was something like 80,000 bricks. It was like eight feet tall. This really allowed me to kind of you know take my dreams to the next level in, in terms of how big things could be because I've got a big bend that's like two feet tall, right? But now I'm thinking we can go larger. Like We could get a Lego structure that could be maybe as big as a dresser, Or actually, I think my future version of myself will be one of these guys who collects the little railroad sets and then runs it around his entire house. You've seen those people, right? (laughs) So now I'm wondering whether, could I get like a Golden Gate Bridge that stretched for the entire length of my living room? Like I'm saying 100,000 bricks, maybe eight to 10 feet tall like would that be too much or would that be like the ultimate conversation starter i kind of think the latter andrew but in terms of other sets that i want to see can we get the wonders of the world like can we get a giant sphinx that'd be pretty awesome right maybe like a four foot tall sphinx and really like dig in with the little imperfections you know his nose is a little bit screwed up let's not have a perfect nose let's have the bricks kind (laughs) of angled um I think that those are, maybe the Great Pyramid would maybe be a little bit boring, but it could also just be incredible if it was like, you know, sort of right by your coffee table in front of your television and you've just got like a three foot tall pyramid. Wait a second. Um, Hold on.
0: You're, you're being asked to construct like your dream Lego figure and the best you can do is a three foot tall structure. I think you got to dream a little bigger here, Ben.
1: I said 100,000 brick Golden Gate Bridge going across my entire living room. (laughs) (laughs) How much bigger do you want? I don't have that much room. I live in a little box here in Los Angeles. Um, But I'm curious, has this prompted any discussions from you? Um,
0: Yeah, you know, I think that the the reality that you described where your entire living space is full of Legos is – is what I imagine you're going to turn into once covering the Lakers every day for the next five years drives you off the deep end. And you, like your basketball reporting just unravels and then you become a full blown Lego freak. Um, and so I'm excited for that for you. I think it'll be a, a great little phase documented meticulously on Instagram.
1: So that that is my official answer. And here it comes, by the way. <laughs> So you've seen the Instagram, the coastal town in Italy called Cinque Terre. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. My Italian's never been practiced before. But it has like those colored houses. Like each house is a different color. And they're all like kind of stacked on top of each other. Almost like the Brazilian favelas or whatever those are called. But they're all on this beautiful like Italian coastline. You know, the water's pristine. The beach looks great. I think I would want to have maybe a 10 foot tall model of the Cinque Terre houses and then have myself as a little Lego guy take <laughs> me a picture of it, right, for Instagram so we can get some like inception levels to it. I think that that would be my ultimate Lego experience. But you know, Andrew, I have to go there first to see it because otherwise I can't build the Lego structure until I've actually been yeah. there. And I've never been there, but it's very high on my well, bucket Well, good. List.
0: I wish you luck in both respects. Make it to make it to the Terrace or wherever. <laughs> I stopped listening. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> I'm just really proud of myself that I got Alizé as one half of Thug Passion. No, look,
1: it's fine. You're three Thug Passions in. Don't yeah, even worry about it. We'll be
0: it. back next week. All right, Ben. I will talk to you next Monday. Go enjoy whatever's happening at Staples Center this weekend. I can't wait to hear about it.
1: Clippers Wizards, Andrew. The last time oh. I saw the Wizards, they made me come on here and tell you about how embarrassing they were in comparing your favorite team to my grandfather and his social faux pas. So we'll <laughs> see what they come up with this weekend. Andrew, everyone can email us at openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Don't forget, hit us up with those five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. And of course, we're on the world famous uh, radio.com. You can stream us everywhere. Andrew. Until next week, I will talk to you.
0: All right, man. Talk to you soon. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.